So tonight, we have our first in a four-part lecture series. This lecture series is called The Princeton Lectures on Youth, Church, and Culture. And when the IOM was founded in 1996, one of the, the reasons we were founded is we believe that youth ministry and scholarship, really robust academic scholarship, belong to each other. And the goal behind this lecture series was to put those two things in conversation and generate new scholarship um, on behalf of, of these two conversations, to bridge these two worlds, so to speak, praxis and theology. And so this four-part lecture series is a really important one for Princeton Theological Seminary. It's sort of a hallmark of this event, too. It's something that will, will probably never leave this event, or at least in the foreseeable future. So we are absolutely delighted to bring you um, tonight your first incredible lecturer for the week. Um, I'm going to introduce her now, Dr. Almeida Wright. She will be our lecturer for today and tomorrow. Reverend Michael Mather will lecture Thursday and Friday. Tonight's lecture is entitled, Movement to Movements, Young, Active, and Faithful. Almeida M. Wright is Associate Professor of Religious Education at Yale Divinity School. Dr. Wright's research focuses on African-American religion, adolescent spiritual development, and the intersections of religion and public life. Her most recent book is The Spiritual Lives of Young African Americans, and she also co-edited Children, Youth, and Spirituality in a Troubling World with Mary Elizabeth Moore. Dr. Wright's other publications include several edited volumes such as Albert Kliege, did I say that correctly? Say it again? Albert Clegg Jr. and The Black Madonna and Child, and introductory essays for the Common English Bible Student Edition. edition. So no big deal, right? Um, I've seen uh, Dr. Almeida Wright present before, and one of the things that I noticed is that when she stands up in front of a room and starts to share um, from the depths of her passion and her scholarship, everyone listens. And it is such an incredible delight to welcome her into this space. We have been fangirling her as the Institute for Youth Ministry staff <laughs> from afar. Um, but truly, her, her scholarship is rich, it runs deep, it connects to the experience, the lived experience of young people. And we are so incredibly um, gifted to be able to stand in her presence and learn from her tonight. So please welcome with me Dr. Elmita Wright. Now, that's going to be kind of hard to live up to, but clearly I'm taking you wherever I have to go to present and lecture from now on. <laughs> Telling you, if Abigail is your hype man, you can do anything. I'm sorry, hype woman. Thank you. <laughs> Good evening. It's truly a pleasure to be here um, at Princeton. I work up at, you know, this other, you know, technical school up the street a little bit from you guys now. <laughs> But it's always a pleasure to, to be in New Jersey. Um, my sister is an, uh, an alum of Princeton Seminary, and now she's a Presbyterian pastor in Montclair, New Jersey. So when I um, come here, I've been here a couple of times, but never as a student. So I'm always excited to, to be back on campus to, um, to hang out or to, to see how things are going. But not to belabor things, let's go ahead and jump into some of the scholarship, some of the stories, some of the narratives. And uh, also I was laughing as um, Abigail was giving that introduction of this Princeton lecture series. When I was a doctoral student, I was so excited because I was thinking, I was discerning whether or not to come to PTS or go to Emory. I chose Emory, by the way. Um, Kenda, <laughs> Kenda 
finally forgave me last week. She finally forgave me last week, finally, finally. So we're back good like this now. Um, but I remember when I was discerning, one of the things that was so attractive was this lecture series. So like I've been like, you know, waiting for my turn. Like I'm like, one day when I grow up, I want to be in this lecture series because I've been using the resources because this has been and was one of the first places where they took seriously the scholarship and the praxis of youth ministry and never saw that they should be separated. And I mean, I'm still fighting that fight. Whenever you want to write a book nowadays, I've had more publishers tell me, well, if you want to dumb down your scholarship, not dumb down, they never say that. If you want to like take out a little bit of your sociological framing, then we would publish this yesterday. Well, because youth pastors don't want that. And I was like, but I don't believe you. But anyway, <laughs> so I'm so delighted to be here. I'm so delighted to be in your presence. I'm so delighted to learn with you and from you over the next few days. I um, am gonna be around. If you see me pushing a baby carriage, also just shout out, there is a little person, um, five and a half month old, who might have much of my attention, but she's, you know, she's normally very friendly. She's a church baby. So she's, um, she's very friendly. And um, if you look like Bill Lamar, she'll even smile at you. So no, <laughs> these are the things that we're working with here. So let's begin. Movement to movements. Young, active, and faithful. Now, the reality is I was a teenager many, many moons ago, but I remember one of the major joys or milestones of being an older teenager was learning to drive. Learning to drive, asking your parents for the keys at that point in time to a Plymouth station wagon that my parents had. It was beautiful. It was brown paneling and everything, wood paneling. Wood and I mean, there were other milestones, like going on your first date or, you know, not having to ride the school bus anymore. But many of these milestones of late adolescence were connected to driving and freedom to move and freedom to, to you know, be away from constant adult supervision. And driving for me was also a major milestone because I grew up in rural Virginia and I don't know how many of you grew up in rural areas but it's not like the city you don't get a subway you don't have a bus you can't just kind of go where you want to only once you got to move by yourself and drive could you have freedom and so there was something about this milestone something about this way of, of moving and so now many of the markers of adolescence are changing and evolving as culture evolves but this one seems to persist this one seems to be one of the things that many youth and young adults in suburbia and in urban areas are still coming to me and still talking about and looking forward to on the one hand and dread on the other, this increased freedom that comes with growing up. Now, of course, we know that the reality, this is, you know, this is not the case in every community. There's some challenges and struggles and some young people don't actually get to wait to be free. Some of them are what we used to call latchkey kids. And so there was a lot of freedom that they didn't really anticipate long before their late adolescence. But we still hear these narratives of, oh my God, I can't wait to get my license. Or, oh my God, I can't wait to go to high school. Or, oh my God, I can't wait to go to college or to leave this hometown or to be able to do X, Y, or Z. And it's no surprise that these things are part of adolescence. Um, and part of the joys of adolescence because we've set them up to be that way kind of culturally, but it's also during mid to late adolescence where young people develop these abilities. S simple things that we take for granted, like increased eye-hand coordination. 
You're going to actually need that to drive, to move, to kind of be around. But also it's a time when young people are able to take on more responsibilities, or we hope that they're able to take on more responsibilities because they now have cognitive and physical and emotional well-being that allows them to make better decisions or to be responsible for other things. And even as we lament the rise of some, you know, what we call helicopter parenting or tiger mothering and things like that, we recognize that many young and older teens are taking on um, these, these new kind of responsibilities and pushing the boundaries and asking for space, asking for ways that they can begin to move and begin to grow. So on the positive side tonight, we won't work too much with the negative, but on the positive side, I want to lift up and affirm the resilience and agency of teens and even younger children as they show us time and again of their abilities to be full and active participants in their own lives when they start pushing and even in ways that we don't like and challenging us and saying, let me move, let me grow, let me be free. So adolescence, we know, is a time of increased freedom. And it's also a time of mutual interpersonal perspective taking. That is a nice mouthful for pretty much meaning that they now can take on the ideas of other people. They can see things from the perspective of others. This is a, a term that Bob um, Selman coined uh, quite a few years ago at Harvard um, Graduate School of Education. And it's really just a theory of social perspective taking or role taking in which we recognize that once you get to late adolescence and into adulthood, they now have the capacity to say, let me look and, and see what it, like, it might be like to live in your shoes. And while it's not a perfect thing, it's the, the groundwork that they need for being empathetic. So developmentally, this sets us up or recognize, so we've got increased movement or desire to be free on one side. We've got increased eye-hand coordination, the ability to actually go and, and drive and do things on the other side. And we've got this social development of this mutual interpersonal perspective taken. And while we recognize that empathy may not be the driving force for all good things in the world, it's quite important. So against this developmental backdrop, we now see that young people are taking on more causes or finding themselves either because of an injustice that they have injustice that they've directly in, uh, experienced or something that they've felt they've been connected to either via social media that they're now saying wait a minute i feel the pain of this issue over here i am moved with compassion and, and I've been saying this for years, and, and you all who work with young people you know, or work with teens, you know firsthand that teens, more often than not, are moved with compassion and want to help. They want to make a difference in the world around them. Now, they struggle sometimes with how, but most want to. And so here, I've been taking probably over the last five to 10 years or even longer, actually quite longer than that now, but I've been taking time to actually begin to pay attention to how young people, or where do I observe teens and youth participating in and, and protests or participating in community organizing or beginning to live out or figuring out what are the ways that I can do something based on this, this newfound mutual interpersonal perspective taking as well as this, these passions and this compassion that is now moving within me. And so we've seen young people and youth and young adults and we can probably 
have our own list of places where we've observed them. But for the most part, recently, we come up with lists and prominent ones like Black Lives Matters or even youth and teens participating in um, more recent women's marches and the Me Too movement. And actually, I saw recently like the girls, girls too, calling attention to the way that a lot of sexuality um, and sexual harassment is happening even younger and younger in ways that we don't always attend to. Things from environmental rallies and immigration rallies and, and water rights rallies and things like March for Our Lives, which um, it dawned on me the other day that we are in April already. I was like, and I was like, wait a minute, we are at almost at the end of April. We've made it through Easter, and it's been over a year since the Parkland shootings and then the student-led organizing. And to the response, like, it's, that was February of 2018. And it's amazing to me that it has been a year, and I was, in some ways lamenting because I was like, I want and I wish that that year timeline would indicate that nothing bad had happened since then or that we could archive what those students were doing then and, and put it you know, into the annals of history or put it into this category of anomaly, but we know that that's not true. Because um, just this past week, schools in Denver were shut down on the 20th anniversary of Columbine from a credible threat. So, or just every day where like we have students and young people who their lived reality are like active shooter drills. I remember tornado drills growing up in the Midwest. I remember fire drills growing up in Virginia, but we didn't have active shooter drills as part of elementary or high school standard practices. And the reality is, we know that there are grieving communities and grieving yet wonderful student leaders all over the country who are part of a larger and longer set of children and youth who experience unthinkable pain and choose or are forced to call to, compel to respond in the form of organizing and activism around the globe and throughout history. But tonight, what I want us to pay attention to is that alongside each of these protests and alongside each of these developmental kind of hallmarks, there is a specific bodily movement. We see movement in die-ins, walkouts or sit-ins, marches, human chains and barricades, standing and kneeling. Young people move and are moved to act in particular ways that some, that, and that's something for us to try to explore more fully. And I mean, because even just looking at some of the images, this is an image from, I think this is from Harvard Medical School. So it's like white coats, um, I think white coats for Black Lives Matter. And then a similar die-in, Parkland students in a Publix. If you're from the South, you know Publix is big, big grocery store. It's like stop and shop or shop right. Or students walking out at Columbine recently. Or again, in 2017, students protesting and rallying against another police shooting in St. Louis, Missouri. Some Canadians for our international brothers and sisters um, in an environmental rally. But what do we see when we look at each of these images? Often, and I was guilty of this too, for years and years and years, I would 
think about the, the protests, I would think about the organizing, I would think about the activism, but I often would not think about the real bodies that were participating in it or what was happening in these bodies. And while these are not com novel concepts, it's interesting that for so often we don't take time to look at them. And so for a while now, I've wrestled with why young people and youth and young adults are both drawn to justice work, but also how their bodies and their embodiment connects with this. And it was interesting, actually. I remember for another project, I was interviewing a young man, and he shared his experiences after hearing and reading about yet another gun-related um, death. Uh, I think it was right after Michael Brown was shot in Ferguson in 2014. And his words struck me. He, we're talking and he says, I was so upset and he was so angry and he just didn't know what to do with his body. He just didn't know what to do with his body. Now, this was an interesting choice of words because, and, and, I, and it struck me and made me pause because I've been there. There's so many moments in my lives that you don't know what to do and there's an visceral embodied set of feelings that we need an outlet for, that this particular young man needed an outlet for. There's a way also, he was an African-American young man, that he didn't know what to do with his body because he knew if he acted in particular ways, he could get in trouble himself. And so he was looking for ways to get involved or to move or to release the tension and the stress that he was embodying in ways that be, could be productive and not destructive. How many of us have encountered the young person who hit the wall and then regretted it because mama said, you know, whatever, or literally hit the wall? And sometimes it's because they just didn't know what to do with their bodies. Like this young man spoke of needing to do something with his body, and so he was walking and found a group of people and they were organizing a trip, and so he says, I just got on the bus. I said, did you plan to get on the bus? He says, no, they, they had a bus. They were going out to Ferguson. He was in college at the time, so he could go. And he's like, and so I just left. I said, do you think about your class? He said, I didn't care. I just said, get on the bus. He went on the college bus with other college students and graduate students for the weekend. They went across the country to protest in Ferguson. And it was only when he was walking down the streets, walking and standing and protesting in front of the police station in um, Ferguson, Missouri, did he begin to actually say that he began to breathe again or, or feel some kind of actual release? He spoke to me of the ways that when he came back or was riding back, he and other friends were also looking for a place where they could reflect spiritually and emotionally on all that had taken place. And sadly, and we'll, we'll talk about this more, it's probably tomorrow, he could not think of a church space that would allow him to, to do that or to, that would have created the space for him to figure out what to do with his body. And he wanted to create that. Now, of course, there is much, much more to his story. It's more complicated and I write about him actually in the book and in particular um, use him as an exemplar. Um, but I'd never really, even in writing about him in that way as an exemplar of young Christian activism, I never really focused until I was remining some data on the stuff that he was saying about his body. So today we zero in on his choice of words regarding his body 
and the reality that many of our lives are directed by our bodies in good and bad ways, or they could be if we listen to our bodies, because sometimes we don't listen to them. And, and some of you might connect with this, or hopefully a few of you connect with this, because some people are runners, some people are pacers, some people are finger tappers, or dancers, or other type of kinesthetic representations of the mental and emotional processes that are taking place for us. And, and now, I'm. Uh, me, I'm just going to be honest, I might be one who's known to wave her hands and or cuss a little bit. Um, and, and, and I definitely find myself holding my tensions and my stress within my body, particularly in my back and my neck. And if it gets really, really bad, in my gut. And, and there are ways that we often discount this, but we need to listen to our bodies because sometimes we need to figure out what do we do with our bodies. And, and we need to, particularly as youth workers, be in the positions of trying to help the young people that we are charged with caring for, charged with ministering with, to figure out what might they do in moments of crises and in this world that we have really kind of left them to deal with, what to do with the, their bodies in face of, of, of injustice. Now, of course, we focus sometimes, often, more often than not, we, um, we focus simply on the awkwardness of adolescent bodies, of the arms that sometimes look too long for a body, or the ways that one might begin to tentatively explore clothes or walking that draws attention to and often away from these newly maturing bodies. We see this all the time. That's one of the things we see. But many times their bodies appear as if they are pulsating with energy awkward, wonderful energy. And in adolescence, this embodiment is coupled with this, these increased agency, and so they can make choices. They can figure things out. And so sometimes, as a, the adults in their lives, we're like, why are you doing this with your body? But other times, when we look at them, we're like, you know, if we're being generous, because I recognize some days I have generous days, some days I don't. If we're being generous, that they are demonstrating for us a freedom of movement that we haven't had in a while. Or a freedom of expression, awkward and, and weird and not necessarily something that they might not regret. Um, I'm so grateful, by the way, that we had paper um, yearbooks and not social media when I was growing up. Because there's so many things that I would live to regret about the choices I was making, the movements I was making with my body at that particular point. But, but I digress. So, but these bodies are tools for action and for spirituality. They're sites of embodied knowing and acting such that when we help youth attend to them and to think more carefully about what their bodies are telling them, we can help them see what and how God is actually calling them to act for good in the world around them. Bodies, we don't like to talk about them. So often we still want to treat youth and our ministry with them as if they are disembodied talking heads. And maybe we can get away with that when we're in places like this or in my academic context. But the reality is we shouldn't and can't get away with it even here. Because young people in particular constantly remind us that this is not going to fly that they have so many things to show and share and say with their bodies. And like the young man that I interviewed, when things happen in their lives, they're often trying to figure out just what to do with their body. Will they huddle and cry as they mourn? 
Will they lock arms and chant as they march? Will they lay on the ground to simulate the real deaths of people like them? Will they mobilize and organize and just take to the streets? Will they disengage and retreat to reflect? Will they sleep from the physical, emotional, and emotional fatigue of perpetual injustice? So interestingly enough, even with the rise of digital media campaigns and protests, many youth still participate in physical events. And so the question, of course, always comes up, why? One of the reasons that, that people are kind of honing in on is that it's happening because the impact it has on them, because there's a way that embodying change has a lasting effect on people that maybe some of their digital activism does not. And so you'll see young people being pushed or drawn to these particular physical movements, even as they're constantly inundated with some of these social and um, digital movements. So from these various movements and protests led by teens and young adults over the last past five years, decade, a few examples stand out and have been theorized in ways that will help us tonight think about the significance of embodiment, movement, and social change movements. So for example, I, I refer to a uh, professor of dance, Anusha Kadar, um, at Colorado College, and she wrote this helpful piece on the hands up, don't shoot um, chants and embodied protest in Ferguson. And I don't know if um, many of you remember, but the chants and gestures were repeated around the world. And Kadar summarizes that she's like, unlike other slogans though, quote, hands up, don't shoot is not just voice, it's also embodied. Contained within the phrase is both a plea not to shoot as well as the bodily imperative to lift one's hands up. Since Michael Brown's murder, we've seen the photos of young black men and women in Ferguson, Tibetan monks from India, black Harvard law students, school children in Missouri, young people in Moscow, a church congregation in New York, and all with their hands up. Some stand, some kneel, some bend their heads, some stare straight ahead. Each one symbolizes a bodily act of solidarity with Michael Brown and victims of oppression of state over citizenship around the world. The hands up gesture has been transformed into a different kind of weapon, end quote. And, and I thought about this, I was like, why did this gesture, why do particular gestures, this is just one example, take on a life of their own? Why do these bodily movements, despite their simplicity, begin to spark larger and longer discussions and lasting memories and actions. Kadar talks about five reasons, and I'm gonna share those briefly and then we can dialogue a little bit more about some other ones. She talks about the way that these, this gesture, hands up, don't shoot, or other bodily movements become part of a habitus. Of course, we know that's referring to the classic Pierre Bourdieu term defined as the way that society becomes deposited in persons in the form of lasting dispositions or trained capacities and structured propensities to think, feel, act in determined ways, which then guide them. So we know when we raise our hands, right, that's typically a sign we've been trained to think that that's a I surrender sign or a I'm not a threat or I submit, not guilty sign. But we recognize that when some people embody this gesture, it is not read and or treated with the same general habitus that we have been formed in. 
So the American and U.S. context, this habitus should say that when we throw up our hands, we know that's a universal sign that we've been trained into that should say not a threat, submission, denutralize kind of the de-escalate the situation. But we fail to recognize that there are also counter habitus that we are living in that have also trained us when we see particular bodies, despite the gesture, that they get read in particular ways. What does it mean then for this gesture to not work, which is why Kadar also talks about it not just being part of our habitus, but as a failed sign. She talks about the reality that we, as we noted, that somebody's, on somebody's the gesture does not work. And so what do we do when we have a dominant culture or a dominant way of thinking, but we also have an equally compelling or an equally moving set of cultures, cultural scripts and strictors that then say, all right, it works for this group here, but over here we must have a different set of rules. Now, of course, we don't like to talk about it, particularly in places like this, where the different set of rules named by no other name than white supremacy, or different set of rules recognizing that there are things that we are trained to do. We call it implicit bias oftentimes, that have then created a new culture that even in spite of our best efforts, be the viewer, the police officer, the trainer, white or black, male or female, because of the culture, because of the habitudes that we are now participating in, the different gestures are read differently. So it becomes a failed symbol. Some gestures that should save you don't work. When the body or the person acting it has already been read as irrelevant or less than, I'm reminded here also of, of, of educational theorist Henry Giroux as he writes about this culture of disposability where he says in the U.S. culture there's often a subculture that we have now begun to say that some parts of our community are disposable. No one's going to actually put that on your label, you know, when you pick up your ID card, you know, good, disposable. But there's a way that we treat people or don't treat people or mistreat people that tells us that we have begun to value this particular group, and we've also begun to devalue this other group here. And he calls it this culture of disposability because there's a way he says that we've written off whole sections of youth and young adults saying that they have no value, nothing to contribute, nothing, there's no, no need to educate them or invest in them because we can now put them in this box, be it mass incarceration, be it poor, poorly funded and um, resource schools, because we don't need to put anything else there. They're disposable. What does that mean for us? So habitus of Feldstein, a gesture of innocence, possibly, one in which even, Kadar writes about this, even in one's dying act, trying to have a final body corporal act of agency. Also talking about it as a choreographic tactic. So after the initial pro, um, embodiment referenced um, to Michael Brown, it becomes also, it can become a tactic that um, Kadar reminds us that while we often want to think that protests and practices just erupt out of the body that which we like, you know, have no control over by definition, like when you protest, it's like something that just comes out, it's a burst. 
The reality is that we know that if we've ever participated in a protest or an organized, these are highly choreographed events. And there are lots of instructions and lots of planning that goes in into order to make the action successful. You don't just get up one day and say, I'm going to protest. Normally, in order for it to be accessible, you at least had to call some people and say, come protest with me. <laughs> Actually, I remember I used to have a professor in college, and they would protest every Wednesday. And it was just two of them. And I was like, I love your faithfulness. <laughs> but this is highly ineffective. Um, and I really probably, you know, had I been kinder, I would have been like, let, let, let's go at least be with you in this moment. But there's a way that they're highly choreographed. And we often, again, don't want to think about, because it almost feels sacrilege to use the choreography language with protest and organizing, but there's a wealth of scholarship that helps us to think about this now, where we are beginning to think about what does it mean for us to, to put bodies in particular places for maximum impact. When you think about dance on stage and theater, there's a way that we want to use our bodies or begin to embody messages and meanings so that even without words, you begin to see or feel something that is stronger and greater and more valuable, um, a more powerfully conveyed message. I mean, I think about many, many other um, examples, even beyond the Ferguson one, in which just the gesture was enough for you to be like, whoa, what happened there? And she also, the final one is that it's a choreopolitics of, of, of freedom. And choreopolitics, again, is playing on the word of choreography, but thinking about the way that there are political actions that become choreographed from what happens on the Senate floor, from what happens in um, police, like the way that in protesting, there's a lot of choreography that happens in what the protesters are doing. But if you haven't noticed, or maybe you have, when the police come out in riot gear, there is strategic choreography and choreopolitics to how they line up and disperse crowds um, and the type of gear and the type of movement um, that it, it's, it's phenomenal to watch and a little kind of terrifying. But it's interesting as we think about this is that what's happening here, what they're trying to remind us here is that the body creations or bodily creations and experiences through this physical act of protest is what makes the concept of, of a political movement so powerful. There's a way that some movements would not be as significant if you did not have these bodily actions that would go along with them. And so scholars are reminding us or pointing us towards the ways that body or embodiment are important tools. Movement is important because it often makes us remember that there are real bodies at stake and in play here, as well as real bodies that are treated differently that we must attend to. So, Here's the question, or one of the many questions. As a Christian public theologian and practical theologian, I'm always forced to, to wrestle with not only what's going on in society in general, but to look at specifically how and where we see examples of, of youth movement and embodiment in Christian communities and how faith connects with or does not connect with the, these questions around social change. And so when, when I was thinking about the interconnections of body, social change, and movements, and faith, I had to think carefully about our theology and practices. And we, we in general, have to think carefully about our theology and practices, questioning simply, 
whether or not they support or hinder youth in their development, in their action, in their agency, and in their desires to grow in faith. For example, questions like what does our theological anthropology look like? If I talk about teens and how much they are soul bodies, big bodies that are moving all over the place or embodied places where they are awkward and wonderful, do we have theological anthropology that is robust enough to attend to what young people are feeling and doing and the awkwardness? Like, like we might have a couple of words about the Imago Dei, but have we also said something about what God might be saying to us and through us that's beyond don't touch, sex is bad, bodies are bad? Or do we take bodies and movement seriously in our churches? And I'm not talking about the 300-year-old congregation that finally got a liturgical dance team last week. <laughs> I'm, I'm not, that, that's not it. Or do we celebrate or think about, you know, think about our messages that we give around the body? For example, what does it mean when we say, your body is a temple? Is that a helpful or a harmful message? Or what does it say when we proclaim that we are the body of Christ? What does that mean? Are we living into that? And when do we employ them? Do we employ them, as my young people used to always tell me, only in big church? Or do we employ them in youth church? And in what way? Because often that body as temple language is used to kind of police behaviors. Not as a place where we say we're trusting God to work in this body, to move in this body, to transform how we think about God in this body. So I had to go looking, because I have all these questions. So I had to go looking, not only for examples of youth and young adult movement and movements, but to see where and how this activism and movement was inspiring or being inspired by faith. And I looked first in my community of origin um, within the African-American youth and the young adults to see where they were integrated. And it was interesting for me, and I write about this in the book, but, and there's lots more, so I'm only gonna give you a little snippet today. But I found these exemplars of black Christian youth activism even as we note that that's not a dominant frame that they're working out of, there were still enough of them that I was like, oh wow, these young people are, are talking about God or thinking about Christianity and or, or wanting to think about Christianity even as they're trying to make sense of their, their activism and their, their movement. And so interestingly enough, within this group, there were several strong African-American Christians who had vocally participated in and reflected upon the ways that their activism was strengthening and often challenging their faith and practices. Um, and, Honestly, I had more young adults than, than teenagers, and we'll, we can parse out why this might have been possible, who were doing this critical self-reflection on faith and their activism or faith in their bodily movements. But I remember just in general, I was thinking about the young man, uh, was Jonathan Butler, who was a graduate student who participated in a hunger strike out at University of, of Missouri, Mizzou, in order to demand change on that campus. And ironically, and most people, and I, I guess I just watch the news listening for faith because this is what researchers do. Um, but he, I remember each interview, he was talking about how seriously he had to take um, this, this faith fast that he was doing. So he had to call up his mentors and call up his pastors and ask them to pray with him to gird him up in order to be able to partake in this hunger fast. But again, 
So there's one side where he's like, okay, he's praying and he's fasting, and we understand what that spiritual discipline is, but we often do not attend to what it is doing for the body or what it means for us to deny the body food or to be so weak or to put our bodies in particular ways that we would actually say, I'm going to use my body in a way that is going to draw attention to or try to draw attention to injustices for other people. What would it mean for us to deny ourselves particular things or even just to turn down our plates um, in this particular way? But Jonathan Butler did this because he was, he, and you know, it was interesting because he knew that he could die fighting for what he believed in. Had the administrators of that university been like many other administrators of other universities, this young man would have died before they responded to anything that he was doing. And that's often what a hunger strike looks like. But it also included things like, and I just have to lift this image up because it's still phenomenal to me, um, figures like Bree Newsom, who is best known for scaling the flagpole down in Charleston, um, South Carolina to remove the Confederate flag nine day, um, days after the nine people were massacred at Emanuel African Methodist um, Episcopal Church. And Newsom's work was interesting, again, for me, because you got to go kind of deep into mining some of the resources to hear her talk about her faith journey. She talks about being a prayer warrior. She talks about her sisters being prayer warriors and getting them together before she agrees. They're at a planning meeting. Again, this is not something she decided to do. She just woke up, she saw the flag, and decided to go scale the pole. No. Weeks and weeks of planning, weeks and weeks of protest. And in the planning meeting, she said she walked out of the meeting and had to go call her sister so that she could pray and discern whether or not it was the right action for her to take because she knew her body would be on the line. Also, we don't think about what's happening with her body. First and foremost, how many of us are bodily strong enough to make this our moment of protest? I will be the one at the bottom with the water. Um, not necessarily gonna be able to help you get up this. But also the reality of life and death here, and she talked about it in one interview, that there were police officers who were using, had tasers in their hand. Had they even misstruck one time, she could have been electrocuted going up this metal pole. So what does it mean to fast, to deny oneself food and basic nourishment as a means of drawing attention to injustices around us? Or what does it mean to risk one's actual body climbing a flagpole or to train to be strong enough to scale this pole in order to embody one's faith and justice commitment? Also with Bree Newsom, if you remember any of the sound bites from the interviews, she was quoting scripture as she was going up and coming down the, this flagpole. In each of these cases, attending to their bodies reminds us of the real lives and people who were in harm's way that they were attempting to draw attention to. But it also reminds us of the fact that sometimes it people have to be willing to risk their bodies for causes or to feel within their bodies what it means to be part of movements. So this landscape of black Christian activism, you know, also includes many seminarians and other students across campuses and around the country who sponsored marches and die-ins and other protests against national injustices and campus racism. I remember reading even here that um, many people were taking to the to many different forums and different um, strategies right here at Princeton, protesting things like the names of buildings, which reflected parts of the school's offensive and often unacknowledged history. 
or that groups were coalescing around issues like campus police um, violence or even cultures of sexual abuse on campus. In other words, there were a wealth of examples, but also a wealth of people, particularly when the seminarians got involved, trying to wrestle with what does it mean or what might it mean for me to, to think fully about this. And interestingly enough, I kept hearing language of active faith, of that I want active faith, or faith that is, is willing to be moved or moving. Now, of course, I love that. And initially I was like, yeah, that's exactly what we need to be. But it also was a reminder in some ways or made me wonder, isn't that redundant? <laughs> Shouldn't our faith already be active or embodied? But the reality is, I guess the need to put the adjective on there was a reminder that many Christians need to be reminded of the fact that we're not always doing it. And of course, we recognize historically this probably comes out of the fact that we've tried to reduce faith to belief. If you just believe these particular truths, then you're all right. But in order for us to think about what's happening in our bodies and what it means for Christians and Christian young people in particular to have this embodied active faith that is concerned about the world and justice, then we need to reclaim this active dimension of our faith. We need to begin to recognize that to be faithful or to have faith should never be cons constituted as a passive state or a state of inactivity. And, and I believe that, you know, for many, for me it is, I, I, and I pray for you that there's much more to faith than simply believing certain truths or praying that one might be okay in the sweet by and by. Faith should always be active. It should be something that causes us to do something. It should be a way that we live the beliefs or, and truths or points to the, the reason that a, a relationship with Christ or one another transforms the core of who we are but also how we move in the world. And so many youth and young adults that I've interviewed have been looking for language and some of them have strapped onto this language of active faith, but they're also wrestling with how their faith connects with justice work and the activism that they also feel called to. And I remember on several occasions, once I'd found young people that I wanted to lift up as exemplars, having them push back and say, but, but Almeida, I don't know. Like, I, I'm still struggling. I'm not sure if this makes sense because while this is the way that I feel led to move, I don't always have the language and or the community that is affirming that this is what faith looks like. And, and some of them felt that I was being too generous. They're like, no, 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 you're giving me way too, credit saying, too, too much credit saying that I am an exemplar of what this looks like to integrate this faith or to, to think about how I'm moving and how this justice is working and that I'm a model for other young people. But what they were also saying is that this is hard work. The reason that we have to have campaigns or have to have reminders that faith must, must be active is that that's much more difficult than the passive faith that says, I've got my five truths, my five fundamentals, my five core beliefs, and as long as I've got them neatly wrapped in this box and I can put them on my shoulder as a badge of honor that you know tells me that I'm a part of this exclusive members only club, I don't have to do anything else except for wear them. But if we are going to embody faith, that's a lot of work. 
that means that when we get up every morning, we're not just making choices to have, you know, quiet time and reflect, but that what we say or how we live or where we go or what we do and what we actually commit to or don't commit to must reflect this as well. So, and I mean, and I'm gonna have to stop here for a second. I'm like, we're looking at time, I'm like, it's 8.06, how do we get there already? I want us to, to leave us with the, a couple, with the last few thoughts and then open it up for a few questions. Interestingly enough, like I also found a, a young person, um, a young adult, she was a seminarian at the time, Nicole Simmons, who wrote in a online column, Urban Faith, regarding her experiences of a dying at Candler School of Theology. And one of the chants there was what does, or this is what theology looks like. A parallel of this is what democracy looks like that they use in a lot of other um, um, protest movements. And I, and I thought about that, and I'll end here. And I was thinking, that's a great chant, but what do we mean by that? Does theology look like causing people to pause and truly feel in their bodies the cold concrete on one's back for minutes or hours, replicating and calling attention to the ways that other unarmed people have died? Does theology look like the feelings of awkwardness as one is not sure what to do or feel as one mind begins to wander while lying on the ground knowing that I personally have a choice to be here but others did not and so any discomfort I have or that I'm feeling pales in comparison. Does theology look like doing the intentional work of trying to make sense of faith or demanding that our faith leaders address issues of injustice from pulpits and in streets, and that I too begin to embody it. And it's been fascinating to go into this, but for me it's also an ongoing kind of project and an ongoing struggle because the question then becomes, how do we take this amazing work that I saw with many of these young adults and begin to translate it into how we train or how we rethink the ministry that we do with young people every day? or even as we read the blog post, or even read or hear the choreography, and even as you sit and listen to this lecture, what will youth group look like next Sunday night? Or Saturday morning, in light of the fact that there's a faith that calls people to do more than be passive bystanders. So let's stop there.